You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 126. We are in the middle of the month of July, so you have had... This will be your third opportunity to kind of put these clues together. This one is a bit of a gimme, I will say. So I'm going to be very disappointed if our regular guessers don't at least give me a guess. And I hope to see some new names on the spreadsheet that I have keeping track of the guesses. We are talking today about the 1989 film Steel Magnolias. It was directed by Herbert Ross, who also did The Turning Point in 77, The Goodbye Girl in that same year, and The Secret of My Success in 87. It stars Shirley MacLaine, Olympia Dukakis, Sally Field, Julia Roberts, a very young 20-year-old Julia Roberts, Dolly Parton, Daryl Hannah, Tom Skerritt, Sam Shepard, Dylan McDermott, and Janine Turner, very young. The DP was John Alonzo, and he was known for some big films, uh, The Magnificent Seven in 1960, Chinatown in 74, and Star Trek Generations in 94. Does that, huh. does that go with those other two? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Was that the first one? Was or? Generations in 94? Yeah, that's Interesting, what it's saying, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would have uh, guessed later. The, ri- the writer is Robert Harling, who actually this is based on his own family's experience. Sally Field portrays his mother and Julia Roberts plays, portrays his sister. And so this is a very personal film for him. He also wrote Soap Dish in 91, The First Wives Club in 96, and The Evening Star also in 96. And he wrote many, he also wrote the play that then became the screenplay. So was he one of the two blonde brothers that um, refused to follow direction and were generally obnoxious? He would have been, yes. Hmm. Very interesting. (laughs) The synopsis for the film is a young beautician newly arrived in a small Louisiana town finds work at the local salon where a group of women share a close bond of friendship and welcome her into the fold. The tagline, I have two for you. The, t- the first one is, the funniest movie ever to make you cry. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick that one. <laughs> Sometimes laughter is a matter of life and death. Mm, again, no. Oh, I, I think both of those kill it for me. There are some clever lines, but I would not say there are any laughs in this film. Oh my goodness, where were you in the funeral scene? Or the graveside, you know, memorial. Yeah. Um, Okay. I I think I I maybe laughed out loud. There's no spoilers here. I I thought the joke was telegraphed, but I did love, I just want to beat someone until they feel this bad. Here's Weezer. That was great. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That that was good. Okay. I I think I did laugh there. Okay. This film had a little bit of issues. Uh, Herbert Ross, the director, had lost his first wife, Nora Kay, in 1987, only two years before the film's release. So probably only about a year before filming. And he has been, a number of the ladies have been interviewed and said that he was, he had a harsh treatment of the actors. And it led Shirley, who probably was, a more senior actor at that point and felt like she had the ability to say this. She went up to him and said, you're behaving badly since Nora's death. And it was just, and it wasn't respectful to her or to the rest of the 
the actors. I kind of feel like Shirley MacLaine was probably that way when she was 20. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. She was a little feisty. <laughs> In fact, after a poor take, he reprimanded Dolly Parton and asked her if she could act. And she replied, no, but it's your job to make me look like I can. <laughs> that is a fun line, but as a director, like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> So why don't you kick us off and then we will get into the meat of this film. What is the pickup line of this film? Does not support my uh, my theory. theory at all. It's morning. That's it. The first line. Oh, it's somebody like saying kind the of The paper a boy good... says it to Anel, but then she says it back. The, the, the first like real clear line though is, yeah, wave those flags, son, from Drum Eater Eatonton, which is right. played by Tom Skerritt. Julie Roberts' uh, father. In the father. Film. He is obsessed because they are getting. The first scene is kind of the town almost, but specifically that neighborhood is getting ready for Shelby's wedding. Right. And the opening sequence, I, I put down. I'm curious your opinion because to me, they seemed so stereotypical to almost be a cliche of small town in the South. I, I kid in my mind's eye hear the director saying, more harmonica. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like bunting and gazebos and who knows what's, what was going on all in there. And so I felt like it was very, and having Anel walk kind of through the town, right? Yeah. It very much, like I said, it was very stereotypical and almost to me, I'm curious again, your opinion, whether it bordered on the cliche or not, because it seemed so very, very on the nose. Well, I almost feel like I have to recuse myself from a lot of... I mean, I okay. I can definitely talk about this film ad nauseum. Is it at or ad? Ad, A-D. Okay. It's Latin. I love this film. And so I feel like it informs, it informs that this entire neighborhood is involved in the wedding. I also feel like it informs us just to what extent, like this is a big deal. Like obviously this is a, a favored daughter. It's the only daughter. So it makes sense why this couple is going to, you know, I mean, we did a, a kind of like a home, a version of a hometown wedding. I don't think we rented glasses. Right. So yeah. There are it, just certain expenses that you can see that they're, they're making. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was trying to think about how those two, come together because I felt like this was before we really got to the, the wedding part because you know you're right once we get to the Eatonton's property it feels like a family that's doing okay mm-hmm. yeah they're definitely uh, very throwing. comfortable but then we find out that um, Weezer and then uh, Dukakis's character I forget what her name is are both quite a bit more well off yes. which is interesting that they would be friends with Dolly Parton how do we know Weezer's well off at one point she says something to the effect of like I'm richer than sin that's oh, why you have okay. to put up with me or something like that because she doesn't dress like it no no but there's a line of dialogue I made a note that her dialogue shows us that she is uh, at least in the same shooting match as Olympia Dukakis's character. Oh, okay. Who apparently had enough money to buy a, a radio station. <laughs> a local radio station. Yeah. yeah. No, Clar- Clarice is very well off. We get that. And I feel like Truvy is doing okay, but but just on the bubble, maybe. Of s- right. Uh, at the end of the film, when Spud, 
which apparently people in the South are incapable of thinking up actual names because we've got drum and spud and flap and flap and <laughs> hoy. But um, spud like get, gets her a new salon in town that's you know pretty big. So it, it feels to me like she's middle class, small yeah. business woman yeah. running her own salon. She obviously is doing well enough to hire Anel, but she's definitely not in the class of buying her own radio station. No, correct. I would agree with that. And so I think they're more friends because of they all live in that neighborhood if, except for maybe Clarice. Yeah, she rocks up in in her expensive car that we'll talk about but later. But that could be their friends like through the church or just from childhood, it's a, and right? it's a small town. Right, if you grew up all together and then Clarice and Weeds are married rich dudes, right? Yeah. You would still be friends. Yeah. So I think that whole opening scene I just, I love the chaos of it. I love that um, Malin, Sally Field's character, is trying to set up everything and get everything. And and Shelby is oblivious to how hard her mom's working to pull this wedding off because she comes down complaining about the color of her fingernail polish. And it's kind of like, well, you would have tried that out beforehand. And right now your mom doesn't care about your fingernail polish. <laughs> She's got broken right. wine glasses, you know, yeah. and then her husband is shooting off guns to scare right. the birds. Now, did we determine when we thought this was set? It was like it's contemporary when it was filmed. So Correct. like 88, what did I say? 80, I thought 89. Yeah. Um, so I have to say, so this is Louisiana, uh, in 1989 in Louisiana, you probably still could, fire pistol within city limits and not have <laughs> five roll up. Yeah. But I think in a lot of places nowadays, uh-huh. I, I think our listeners should not use that as a method to get birds out of a tree is what <laughs> no. I'm saying. No. If we had a warning section, <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. definitely be in it. I love the line from the wedding. So Jackson comes and to tell Shelby, like, please, please marry me. Cause she told him the night before, we don't know why, but he, she told him the night before that she doesn't think they should get married. And so he comes to make sure that, that she still wants to marry him. And I love the line, that VCR is reason enough to get married. <laughs> so that puts us clearly, oh, we're the late 80s because a VCR is a great gift to get. Well, at, at the time, and I'm just curious if our, what percentage, I should say, of our listening audience are not familiar with what a VCR, <laughs> what a VCR. is, right? <laughs> Yeah, it was, I think it was supposed to be sweet that he came to talk to her, to convince her, but not knowing anything about this film, just seeing this guy climbing through her window, I was like, (laughs) yeah, like, uh, Drum should use that pistol on him. On him, (laughs) yeah, and she says, that's my, if my daddy catches you in here with me. Yeah, yeah, so that was... (laughs) I've seen this. I want to hear what you think of the writing. How about that? We'll start there. Right. So I I have to say um, to the listening audience, at several points throughout our watching and discussing movies this month, I got Terms of Endearment and Steel Magnolias mixed up. In my mind, they're the same film. So if I say something dumb, that, that maybe is what's going on. I found it was not obvious to me what was going on for a while. And I have to admit, I leaned on the crutch of asking you several times, what the hell's going on here? Uh-huh. So I generally like a progressive disclosure. I felt like if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't have drawn the diabetes connection. And so that was kind of interesting having a friend who has type 1. I know it's a serious ailment, 
but it didn't she appears to really suffer quite a bit from it right and spoiler alert and it eventually takes her out so that to me was i didn't i didn't kind of understand that so much but it really wasn't about that i was more just kind of the the thing they showed her and her mother really not having what i would consider a good relationship but maybe that in some mother-daughter pairings that's normal right but her mom played by sally field was really not very compassionate or understanding i felt like you know like her daughter wanted to have a child and she was just all angry and bitter at one point Shelby says, we tried to buy a child, by which I think they mean adoption. <laughs> yeah. Um, didn't know if they meant like going to China and purchasing no, no, no. a child. And she says, and we couldn't. And I thought, well, <laughs> that seems really unrealistic to me. That was, But I understand it was kind of for the plot device to set up that she had to get pregnant. So I felt like, well, she even says, and I don't know if this was true, but... She said, nobody will give a child to somebody with my health condition. Yeah, that was it was a stretch for me. I didn't think they would say, oh, well, this kid, he either stays in this orphanage or he could go home with a person who has diabetes type 1 and she'll live for decades. And anyway, so that was a little bit from a writing perspective. Maybe that actually like happened, right? It did. The, the, it was the, so, the, the was... author pulled that out of the experience. No. So I can't say it couldn't happen. But to me, that was surprising, right? It reminded me a little bit in structure of your Christmas movie with Craig T. Nelson and uh, uh, oh, Sarah Family Jessica Parker. Stone. Family Stone, right. In kind of this family comes together and stuff happens and then somebody doesn't make it. So there was kind of that whole uh, that whole thing. I really did enjoy the Statler and Waldorf of Clarice and Weezer, right? And, and they were kind of fun and feisty. I was curious. I think uh, Daryl Hannah's character, Anel, really, I'm not sure what purpose she served narratively in in the film. Well, she was maybe the outsider, so kind of served as the audience, but possibly to explain that this group wasn't so insular that they wouldn't bring in a new woman to support and take care of because mm. they all kind of had a hand mm. in her progress throughout the movie. That's an interesting perspective. I have to give a little thought. I uh, did like, it was pretty pro-firearm. You generally don't see that very often. And there's a line where Shelby says, Jackson's found a firearm. We may never see him again. <laughs> um, so uh, you were kind of, you're speeding through a lot of this, so... Right. Oh, I, sorry. It won't slow down. <laughs> well, I just want to say that I think that... So it was based on a true story. So the writer, Robert Harling, had a sister. Right. And his... And I think I saw an interview with Sally, and she said, I think when you have a child... His sister was diagnosed with type 1, in, I think, when she was 8 years old. And so for at least 10 years to, let's say... 12 or 14, you know, getting a child through college once they've been diagnosed with an illness and your constant concern is what is their blood sugar? What are they eating? When's the last time they ate? What did they eat? Are they, you know, like, are they eating stuff they shouldn't? She mentioned that Sally said she could imagine if you had a child and you were obsessed with their care and, you know, did she take her medicine and all of this stuff that then once you get them to like 18, 20, 24, 
you're still kind of in that mode, but you have to slowly back off or back off because now they're an adult and they're responsible for those things. But now when they make decisions, when a doctor says you probably shouldn't have kids because the pregnancy is going to tax your body so much that you're already weak kidneys have to support now two lives and your child doesn't adhere to medical advice, you would be cranky. You would be a little, I think, upset because you want your child to live. Now, I understand as someone who did want to be a mother, I understand why Shelby wants to have a baby. Okay, so a couple things there. You know, not saying it it didn't happen in his sister. I'm sure it did because that's what he said. But what I'm saying is... Did it happen in 1989 to his sister? I don't think so. I think it happened earlier, and he took that to write about it. And so that having a doctor tell you you can't have a baby because you have diabetes seems not like common or it's less believable for 1989 than 1959. I would totally believe that. So that's one thing. So to me, again... Uh, not invalidating anybody's experience. I'm just saying for me, it wasn't believable. Like that bumped me completely. I think I would mm-hmm. have bought um, the film better if they'd come up with some like Lorenzo's oil kind of thing I'd never heard of. I'd be like, oh, okay, you know, she's she's got Bingington's disease. Okay. So that was, I just mentioned, because that's like a key kind of, I wouldn't even say plot point um, condition that informs the rest of the film. Well, the whole film kind of orbits around her medical condition. Mm-hmm. So there's that. They established that Jackson is doing very well financially because he's an attorney. So I, I would have felt like, well, then they w- would have certainly had help of some sort, whether it be someone in the home to help with all the household chores, the best doctors, presumably that money could buy and that kind of thing. So that, like, like I'm just, you, you asked me my thought of it coming into yeah. this kind of cold is that that bumped me. I could live with the relationship between the mother and Shelby because I've seen it a lot, I guess, in, in film. So I feel like, okay, that is a believable relationship between the two of them. But I have to say, like, I could also believe it if Shelby, when her mom was not supportive of the grandchild, was just like, okay, you know, screw you. Like, guess who's not seeing Jackson Jr.? Right. I mean, that was like to be that unsupportive. Uh, That's pretty intense. Right. For for someone, uh, I think, to go after their kid that hard. And I, I hear you what you're saying about Sally Field's motivation, thinking that, you know, there's this mother that is obsessed about a child. And now the child is doing some things that that you think would endanger them and you would be upset. OK. Right. I mean, I can kind of believe it. But like I said, there are costs, there are consequences to that choice of treating your child like that. So that doesn't resonate with me. I, I think if someone was that negative about me having a child, I, I don't know that I would get over that. But I guess Shelby did. And maybe some families do. Right. Not mine. So what was some of the other things I sped by that you wanted to talk oh. about? <laughs> what did you think about the relationship between the women? Like, did you buy that, you know, intergenerationally and, you know, as you stated, Anel is at a different socioeconomic class than Clarice? And, you know, what did you think of, 
I guess, the way they came together for one another. Uh, I, I think that it seemed believable. I, I, as I mentioned before, I really liked the sparring between Clarice and Weezer. And then, you know, the having Truvy be kind of the center of the information network in the town through the salon made mm-hmm. sense to me, mm-hmm. right? And uh, even though maybe the director didn't think Dolly acted well, I enjoyed Dolly in this film. And so maybe she's just being Dolly and Dolly's a hoot. But I think that worked out well for me. I thought Tom Skerritt's character was a little bit of a character. He seemed Mm -hmm. not quite right in the head. But um, it's possible that he was given direction to kind of amp that up a bit. And so at the end of the film, something happens. And he kind of gives Weezer like a little fake salute. So I, I think that was to tell the viewer that some of his behavior was purposeful just to yank her chain. Exactly. Yeah. For cinematography, there's a shot in the in the uh, salon, and Julia is in the foreground, and Sally and Dolly yeah. are in the mirror in the background, and the audio is coming from Malin and Truvy in the background. And it's so good because you hear what they're talking about and you see how it's affecting Shelby's character in the foreground. Yeah, that was really super well done. A very cool scene. He had a couple of times where he had um, shots where Anel was framed with stuff. So there was like a a walkway where the trees arched over her mm-hmm. that very had the same shape that you would associate like with with arches and churches and framing her with some other foliage, I thought. But um, another thing that I thought was kind of fun was when they're carrying the wedding cake in, they they dolly that shot so that you see the cake and the two guys moving through everything. And I think that's playing off of how often in movies, if a wedding cake is being moved, it gets tipped or smashed or somebody falls into it. or And so it's kind of that, that tension, like, oh, no, right. they're showing us the cake. Yeah, is that what's going to happen here? Yeah. The cemetery scene was done in one take. Well, uh, you know, and this is interesting. At the time we watched it this last time, you had commented on Sally Field acting. And uh, not to be critical, I don't really consider that to be her best acting work. To me, that was over-the-top scenery chewing. You know, it was just kind of like have a big moment, not great acting to me. But if nothing else, it served to set up that awesome line of, here's Weezer, hit her. (laughs) Uh, That, I thought, was great. I think the whole film was setting up, pushing her in the way and say, punch her. I I thought that that part was comedy gold. It's so funny. And I think the reason I love Sally in that scene, and I did acknowledge, I mean, that's a Sally that we saw in Smoking the Bandit. It's probably a little bit that we saw in Soap Dish. I think, I'm trying to think of, I know, oh. Uh, I was thinking Norma Ray. She's standing on the table yelling yeah, at people. But what I love about this one is, because there's a movie that's totally leaving my mind, but I saw it there too. She goes from, she's looking at herself, and what kicks it off is she asks for a mirror. And she kind of chuckles to herself because she's like, oh, Shelby was right. My hair looks like a a brown helmet. 
And so she's hearkening back. She's missing her daughter, but she's still hearing her daughter's voice in her head. When she looks at her hair, that's her first thought, which I think is a real thing that would happen. And then you start chuckling because you're like, oh, she was right. And she's chuckling. And then she goes, I just miss her. And I just miss her so much. And then she goes through this like roller coaster and she is almost like goes through all the emotions that one goes through when you're grieving, anger, frustration, you know, I just want to hit something like, and it just, like you said, it perfectly sets up then this, the, the break in the tension. It's just, to me, this scene is so well-written that, you know, <laughs> Clarice grabs Weezer yeah. and just says, here, hit, hit her. her. I mean, I just think it's one of the best, so it's best thing. I'm going to put it in the show notes because everybody, if you have not seen this scene, you have to watch it. It's just classic. I guess maybe I identify more with Clarice of <laughs> what can you say to break the awkward tension? Exactly. Than with Malin, who, and maybe again, this is kind of my own. We watched another film just yesterday where someone has a, a breakdown in the hotel hallway. And part of it is I'm just kind of embarrassed for him. Like, dude, maintain, like get yourself under control. And yeah, but I think that says a lot because I think uh, it's yeah, cathartic it does. To, for people to have those outbreaks. I think that's when you like work through stuff. You like you process it in that way. I, I also process my dinner, but I don't want other people to watch <laughs> oh, <geez>. that. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I mean, I kind of agree. There's a certain like there, but yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's absolutely definitely me. That, that that's not my uh, kind of my comfort level. My sensibility is those those giant, you know. Ha, ha, you need to go into the woods for a bit, right? Right. Yeah, um, you, you go off where other people don't see you. You mentioned, I believe, when we were watching this, that Daryl Hannah was is almost too attractive to be Anelle, and the director thought so too. So she asked if she could come in and read for the part anyway. And the next day she arrived to the studio dressed as Anel, and she was so unrecognizable that security wouldn't let her in. So did she pick out those cat's eye frames? I wonder because, because they're old. I mean, they're 30 years old when the film is set mm-hmm. and they're not that attractive. <laughs> no, they're not. And she, she kind of goes through a metamorphosis throughout the movie. And I think that rings true also, because I think true view would be like, well, sweetie, have you tried this? And well, sweetie, what if you well, got some contacts and-, and dialogue? She says he took her money and most of her clothes were in the trunk when he, are you an OFT? So that, uh, yeah, that definitely tracks. And, but speaking though of costumery, yes, I did, did notice that uh, at one point Shelby is wearing these pastel plaid Bermuda shorts. Mm-hmm. And I think I had that same pair of shorts in that era. <laughs> so way to go. Pastels were big in the eighties. Pastel plaid short Bermuda shorts, man. Yeah. I had a couple <laughs> pair of those. What did you think of those uh, Pepto-Bismol pink bridesmaids dresses with hats? I don't know, were they blush or bashful? <laughs> yeah. They were actually they were incredibly period accurate. Yes. So, yes. Um and well the hair. played. All the, the ladies had the teased out. And curly they had the hair. giant poofy shoulders. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was, that <laughs> Took was good us stuff. Back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Way back machine. 
I loved, we talked about the opening scene. I loved the like iconic, the boy riding through the neighborhood, you know, throwing the paper onto the porches and the front porches with the swings and the white, literal white picket fence. And, you know, the local little league baseball team running through the neighborhood. It just, to me, it just set that scene up. And so it was shot in the small town of Nacogdoches, even though it was supposed to be Chickapin. And reportedly filmmakers made so many demands on the locals that so many that volunteered when three years late or two years later, when the man in the moon came to the same town to shoot extras were very hard to find (laughs) because they they had well enough. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think it was probably period accurate for Louisiana and 89. But one of the things that we mentioned and I think we even paused to go back, is at the wedding reception, some of Jackson's groomsmen, one of them had on a Confederate hat, and the other (laughs) had a saber. A saber, yeah. That he pulled out of the scabbard and was drunkenly waving around more than once. Not safe. Yeah, so again, maybe that's accurate, but... um, (laughs) For the South in 1989, it very well could have been. I have no idea. I have no way of knowing. And is that a case where, you know, the the extra showed up with the saber? I brought my own saber. Right, and we're just like, okay, be careful with it. Yeah, he's method. Yeah. So under sound, I'm just going to say that in the township, it was Natchitoches was um, known for these noisily squawking birds that disturbed the peace. And so they kind of, you know, embraced it. In order to film, two months prior to filming, the production company hired a Los Angeles studio bird and animal wrangler. And he, they transported their showbiz wire cage blackbird circus to Louisiana where they settled in at the local Holiday Inn, and for six weeks, including Saturdays and Sundays, the Wranglers trained the flock of blackbirds with a loaded, with blank-loaded gunshots as signals to fly from one location of trees to another so that they could film the scene with the birds. Again, that seems so much harder than using visual effects. I know, but they didn't have that then. In 89. Yeah, well. Or maybe it was prohibitively expensive if they did. I guess. Like, I don't even know how you train blackbirds to do something, let alone fly from one tree to the next. I know a guy you can call. (laughs) Yeah. If I ever need that in a film, and (laughs) I pray I never do. If you do. All right. Was there any head trauma in addition to, with all these uh, firearms abound? Well, we we have two implied, well, I guess maybe you even say three. And then one reel. So Cleary tells a story about a woman getting hit in the head with a baseball. I think that counts, but it's just a retelling. A woman at the reception has a giant bandage on her forehead. Unexplained. Unexplained, but we presume something happened, something traumatic happened to her head to get that bandage. Yes, it's it's like a good two by three inch bandage on her forehead. It's a big one. So much so that you would actually comment on it in real life if you saw that. Oh my gosh, what happened? Shelby collapses at her house off screen, but we do see her co- collapse by the, the stairs. That was not good. They never went into the specifics of, of how that injury took her out, but it could have been that she hit her head when she fell. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And then we did see, according to my notes, Jack slaps Weezer. So. Oh, that's right. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how about a smooch? 
Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. I had no recorded smooches. I don't think we see the, the we, you may we, now kiss the bride. I don't think we do. We see him coming out of the house in like in their garb for uh, they've changed clothes and now they're going to get in the car and, yeah. and go off on their honeymoon. But I, we don't see the ceremony. And I, I don't recall. think he kisses her when he comes into her bathroom right before the wedding. No. And in fact, this is more cinematography, but I was really impressed at how they blocked that shot so that Julia Roberts could get out of the tub, but she could be wearing a swimsuit for all that we saw. It was really cleverly done. Yes. Yeah. I noticed that too. But they were not that close in that, in that scene. Uh-huh. There was always a couple feet between them. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, let's see. Uh, driving review, please. Okay. So, uh, Spud, who is played by, I believe, um, Sam Shepard? Yes. He drives a brown 73 Ford F-250. I think that's an accurate one. Truby's son, I think, Louie, he rides a motorcycle, but it's uh, a relatively new, it's 86 Honda. I don't know if in the South they would ride a Honda. I think there are some other options, but I'm not a motorcycle could it, guy. Could that have been a cost? Like his, he that's all he could afford? Uh, very well, it could be. I think that uh, they may have still been in uh, a lower cost motorcycle at the time. Again, I'm not a motorcycle guy, so somebody who is, you can let us know. When uh, Clarie rolls up in that 88 Lincoln Continental, that is a brand new Lincoln Continental top of the line. So that tells me that she has a fair amount of cash. That's a nice ride. And then Truby has a 73 Buick Apollo. I didn't recognize I had to look that up. I didn't recognize the Apollo. It was only sold for a few years, and it was kind of a budget car. So that makes sense that, again, that fits with her. So the car they drive away in was an 88 Mercury Grand Marquis. And uh, so that's a pretty nice car. It's basically a brand-new car. So that's showing us that Jackson has a fair amount of money. Then later in the film, Spud drives this uh, 1970 International Harvester Scout, which the only reason I can think production did that was they wanted him to drive up on the lawn because uh, they had to get Anel to the hospital because she's given birth. Yep. Uh, and my last note for, of an automotive standpoint is Anel wants to name their kid Shelby after the Julie Roberts character. I think her husband Sammy wants to name it Shelby after the Cobra. That's my opinion, <laughs> but... Probably so. Probably so. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. One quick thing before I start into the numbers is Herbert Ross directed Soap Dish and Sally Field was in it and she almost didn't take the picture because of how nasty he was this time. And he, he actually came to her and apologized and said, I would really like you to take it so I can kind of write some wrongs that I did. So he, I think Shirley was right. He was grieving his wife and... So, um, as we know, Sally took the job. This film, though, Steel Magnolias, had a budget of $15 million, and it made $83 million adjusted for today. That would be like $188 million, and worldwide it brought in $95 million. So, I would say that would be considered a success. It got a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb. And critics, though, didn't really care for it. They were maybe more in line with you. They gave it a 66, or it has 66% fresh. And then audiences, though, loved it much, much more at 89%. And I would agree with those audience members. It was, like I said, filmed in Louisiana. It's just under two hours at an hour and 57 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
It's rated PG and it is listed as a comedy drama romance. And it came to us from TriStar Pictures. Julia won the Golden Globe for Best Performing Actress and the film itself won the People's Choice Awards as a tie for the favorite drama with Batman that year. Okay. Drama I would buy. Definitely a drama. Yeah. That will do it for Steel Magnolias. This is, like I said, your third option. We have five movies this month in July. So here is your third film. And please text us at 971-245-4148 with your guess of what our theme is. Our films so far have been Terms of Endearment, Mermaids, and now Steel Magnolias. Join us next week as we'll be talking about Mrs. Doubtfire. But never forget... Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 